Hi everyone, my name is Natara Chug and I'm a co-founder of Bay Area Youth for Justice and I'm going to be facilitating this discussion about healthcare. Bay Area Youth for Justice is a youth-led organization dedicated to helping out Bay Area communities and spreading positive change in the Bay Area. I'm here with fellow Bay Area Youth for Justice members and Disagree to Agree, an organization of high school students that features student panelists on their YouTube channel to converse and come to consensus about controversial issues to combat the polarization of the political community. To learn more about Bay Area Youth for Justice, visit bay4j.com or check us out on Insta at Bay, for, Bay Area Youth for Justice. And to learn more about Disagree to Agree, check them out on Instagram at Disagree to Agree Official. As you all know, election day is just a few days away, and one of the key issues in this year's election was healthcare, and rightfully so. The U.S. healthcare system is a mix of public and private, for-profit and non-profit insurers and healthcare providers. The federal government provides funding for the National Medicare Program, which is for adults age 65 or older, and healthcare for some people with disabilities, as well as various programs for veterans and low-income people, including Medicaid and the Children's Health Insurance Program, or CHIP. States manage and pay for aspects of local coverage and the state safety net. The dominant form of healthcare is private insurance, which is provided primarily by employers. Nearly 92% of the U.S. population was estimated to have coverage in 2018, leaving 27.5 million people, or 8.5% of the population, uninsured. This is a decrease from an uninsured rate of 16% in 2010 when the Affordable Care Act, a program aimed at making healthcare more affordable, was first enacted. Annual per capita health expenditures in the U.S. are the highest in the world at $11,000 on average, with healthcare costs growing between 4.2% and 5.8% annually over the past five years. During this discussion, we'll be going over some proposed healthcare plans, including Medicare for All and Biden Care, the state of healthcare in America today, and then come back to discuss what healthcare proposal is best for the country or what reforms in the healthcare system are needed. Um, so is everyone ready? All right, so we'll be starting off with Medicare for All. Medicare for All is a healthcare plan endorsed by Senator Bernie Sanders that would guarantee every American healthcare. Medicare for All is a single payer system, which means that there will be only one provider of health insurance, the federal government. Medicare for All would replace all private healthcare and current government healthcare programs, such as the Affordable Care Act and Medicaid. So first off, um, what does Medicare for All mean for someone watching today? Ajay, you wanna start? Okay, so Medicare for All is a bill proposed by Bernie Sanders, and it says that everyone in the United States will get free healthcare, no premiums, no co-pays, no deductibles. You just get free healthcare. You walk into the um, you walk into any hospital, and you can just get free healthcare if you registered with the Medicare for All program. And yeah. All right, and um, what does a single payer system really mean for Americans? How will it change someone's finances or salary? Uh, Adam, you wanna take that question? Yeah, so basically with Medicare for All, we're gonna have a system which gives everyone insurance and the way we're gonna pay for it is probably gonna be through debt or taxes. But the good part about Medicare for All in terms of the economy is that it increases the amount of money in people's pockets because they're not paying the exorbitant prices that we have right now for healthcare. And they're also gonna, uh, and it's also gonna help the po the poor side of the economy. It's gonna increase poor people's incomes by about twenty nine percent, and increase the number of jobs in America because it, it reduces job lock, which is basically right now people are locked into jobs that they don't want to be in because they're scared of losing their insurance. And also, as unemployment goes up right now, people are losing access to healthcare 
But under Medicare for All, all of that stops. So we have increased jobs, lower poverty, making Medicare a great program for the poorer Americans. Yeah, does anybody want to expand on that or talk about um, how it might affect the middle class? Um, I can go for a bit. So as Adam mentioned, there hasn't been a super clear uh, like plan on how we're going to fund it exactly. Like Bernie Sanders has one plan, but it's not sufficient in order to raise the revenue. Um, Representative Jayapal, who proposed this Medicare for All in the House, again, she has not really provided a plan. Um, so we can guess that it's either through debt or through taxes. But I think we can assume that there is going to be some amount of taxes because you can't fund like a $32 trillion like, dollar program like solely through debt. Um, so I th do think taxes are going to increase, but considering the amount of money Americans pay for, like for just like their insurance, like now, like medical bills are the number one path to poverty in the United States currently. So I do believe that the majority of Americans are going to see savings, um, even if there's a tax increase. I think that just the cost of taxes like is a lot less than what they're currently paying for insurance. Yeah, and kind of uh, just going off of what Roshni said, most estimates put the price tag of Medicare for All at $32 trillion for the next 10 years funded federally. And as Roshni said, there has been no concrete plan um, for the bill, but Bernie Sanders has proposed um, a couple different options, which have included increasing income taxes on Americans making over 250K um, per year, increasing taxes on businesses and implementing premiums from households, which would consist as 4% of an individual's income as healthcare insurance premium. So my question for you guys is, for these people making two, over 250K, for these people who usually get their insurance from their employers, um, would Medicare for All really leave them worse off financially, or is it still a benefit? Aishik, you want to take that question? Yeah, so if you make over 250K, I haven't looked at the exact plan. So Bernie Sanders' like tentative plan that's still not complete, that's on his website, um, does establish certain... Um, wealth taxes and estate taxes that might affect you if you have incomes over 250K. So I'm, I think depending on the person, I think most people won't be financially worse off. Um, however, although we, it's like a general consensus, people will save money. It's also important to, you know, we'll talk about this later, but is the quality of health actually going to be like that good if you're going to save money? And at what point do you value the quality of health over saving money? Yeah, and before we go on to quality of health, um, in April 2019, officials arrested a South Florida businessman for biking Medicare and Medicaid out of $1.3 billion in fraudulent nursing home claims. Two days later, federal authorities charged a dozen more officials in a $1.2 billion Medicare scam regarding neck braces. And in 2019, Medicare had payments made either in the wrong amount or under fraudulent pretenses of 8.12%. Um, Medicaid had an even higher improper payment rate of 9.8%. Opponents of Medicare for All are not only concerned about potential fraudulent payments from the public that may occur if we have this um, entire Medicare for All program, but also corruption in the government. Um, Uwe Renhart, who was a professor of political economy at the Princeton University and is a prominent scholar in healthcare economics, wrote that when you go to Taiwan or Canada, which are both single payer countries, the kind of lobbying that we have here is illegal there. You can't pay uh, money to influence the party the same way. Therefore, the bureaucrats who run these systems are pretty much insulated from these pressures. Here, you basically have a board of directors in the House um, Ways and Means Committee that gets money from lobbyists at both at the regulatory writing stage and during normal operations. And they call an administrator and they demand, that so demand something from stop happening. 
So my question for you guys is, how worried should the American public be about possible corruption by bad actors in both the public and government in a Medicare for all system? And Roshni, you want to take this question? Um, yeah, so I do think there is a risk of just like this corruption because you can see that on Medicaid and Medicare, which are like kind of Medicare for all, but like on a smaller scale or directed at like a certain group of people, there are, as you sort of mentioned, there's are like a lot of, um, there's like a lot of like fraud happening and there is corruption. So I would say that, yes, that is something the government would have to figure out, especially when you're trying to give health care to like 330 million Americans. Um, there is definitely going to be some sort of fraud or corruption. Um, Adam, would you like to add on to that? Yeah, so fraud or corruption, I think, is an issue in both Medicare for and both worlds, actually, because under Medicare for all, we're still keeping administration and we're filing paperwork through the government. So even though it's streamlined, there's probably still we're increasing administration costs under Medicare for all, even though they're high right now. So there's probably still opportunities for fraud and the theft of the people under Medicare for all. But it's probably going to be similar to what we have right now. I don't think that's something that's going to change explicitly or like by a large amount. Or All right. And anybody else have anything to add to that? Yeah, um, I actually think that there might be less corruption with Medicare for all, because right now we have uh, we're, we're in like a free market, right? We're, we're in like capitalism. So what's happening is that the sole like purpose of these like in private insurance companies are like oh we have to make profit that's how we like make money which i'd actually say links into more uh corruption because they might prioritize profits over the health of the citizens while the government while the government I i'm sure like there there's a chance that it might be corrupt but i'd say that i'd actually trust the government to look out for the health of its citizens over making a profit because the government won't be making any profit off of like Im imposing medicare for all Our responses think, to that? Yeah, I go ahead. I think it'd be more risky putting it in the hands of the government, um, primarily because for private insurance companies, like, yes, they care about profit, but they also care about getting that profit to innovate. They also care about that profit to make sure that they, like, their people who have private insurance are content with their insurance because the minute they focus on profit way too much, um, their private insurance holders are just going to leave. So they do like like profit, but at the same time, they also care about the quality of healthcare, which is why in the United States, the waiting times are much less than Canada, UK, or any other single payer nation. And especially as Antara stated, lobbying is like a huge thing in the United States. You're going to get a lot of done through lobbying. And Sanders has like a two, two dozen lobbyists. So like even someone like who people consider noble, like Bernie Sanders still also have lobbyists. And with anything like the government does, you're gonna get more quality healthcare out of uh, private companies, even though they have corporate interests, but on net, they will provide you a better service. Yeah, and I wanna kind of expand on the wait times and uh, worse quality of care here. Um, as Aishik mentioned, Canada is one of the many countries that have a single payer healthcare system. And a problem that the current Canadian system faces is long wait times and many worry that a single payer system in the US would pose the same problem. Furthermore, people question whether the US has enough hospitals and doctors to support the Medicare for All program, and if Medicare for All would actually lead to hospitals closing down and doctors leaving their profession. Um, does the US have the infrastructure to support Medicare for All? And if not, what does that mean for Americans? Um, Anika, you wanna go? Yeah, so a couple of things. 
already in America, there are long wait times, except it's spread out over days and over um, over time, rather than how in Canada, I'm assuming is just in general, one day, it's a long wait time. So essentially, it's gonna, the US already faced that faces that problem. So it's not possibly not going to be a change for that. And um, also, a lot of people tend to have like, in general, for people who are on Medicare and Medicaid, who um, they tend to have, uh, wait in lines as well, but they come to sometimes get faced, um, faced away after a certain time due to like closures with the hospitals and businesses, uh, hospitals. And um, so that's always going to be a problem in general with uh, hospitals. Does anybody want to add on? Definitely agree. I wouldn't say the wait times in the United States are like very ideal right now, but I think there's a like a very distinct difference between United States wait times and other countries wait times. So like, I'm going to bring up an example. So for orthopedics, if you're going to get an appointment, got to wait 1.4 weeks on average. But in Canada, you have to wait 17.9 weeks on average to get from a general practitioner to a specialist appointment, and then wait another 24 weeks to go from a specialist to the first treatment appointment. So the difference in wait times is substantially larger. And like the mindsets of Americans are also very different from Canadians because Canadians like on net, like through surveys, Canadians are okay with waiting a bit longer, even though in my opinion, I think to some extent, like waiting uh, 40 or whatever weeks I said is a bit too long. Whereas Americans have like on survey, have said that they need like quick wait times. And for like on net, the general population, just transitioning from like this sort of quick wait times to something like 40 times that much is going to be a huge transition that I'm not completely sure will be um, justified for what Americans actually want. Okay, so I actually wanna bring up uh, the, the Canada comparison that you're making. Um, I, I'm not sure if that's like a good comparison. I'd say we should obviously like take into the fact these empirics, but I'd say a more accurate uh, like like comparison would be the U.S. and France because Canada spends like far below the U.S. on healthcare, and that like successful actual single payer systems like France that like spend adequately on their universal healthcare, they like and like France and the U.S. are both going to be spending like a lot of money on their healthcare system because the U.S. and France are heavy spenders, unlike Canada. And you see that in France, they actually don't have problems such as wait times. So I'd I'd say that maybe Canada might not be the best representation. Yeah, I would agree with Jay there. And then I think it just comes down to whether or not we have the funding or the capability to support that kind of system. So I think like, yes, if we put in more funding and if we're able to secure more doctors and things like that, then of course the wait times are gonna go down. But the question is whether or not we're gonna be able to get all that money, how we're gonna get that money. So I think it, again, it all kind of comes down um, to funding. Uh, yeah, also it, it's important to note the population differences between France, Canada, and America, which means that they would be America and Canada would essentially be supporting more people. So that also comes into account as well for med for like the funding and uh, infrastructure as well, which we can go into I think now on um, if the I think the U.S. has enough sources to support um the the single payer system in general like and medicare for everybody as there are like government hospitals and there are also private hospitals that could like combine in forces and then help as um the population 
I just want to clarify why I was comparing to Canada. So the difference between the United States, so Medicare for all, right? Medicare for all would allow like the current hospitals to stay. Whereas like the United Kingdom with the NHS and France, they own all the hospitals. So like all the hospitals are government run and they're public. I don't think that's what Medicare for all um, stands for. I think Medicare for all is just going to be like everyone can get healthcare, but the hospitals itself are so private like Canada. So like that's why I made the comparison between the U.S. and Canada and not um, like the two other countries. Yeah, and actually, um, Aisha, I have a question for you. You're talking about how we're still going to have private hospitals in the if we have Medicare for all. And a main way that private health, um, like private hospitals make money is through um, insurance and is through um, these high insurance rates that private insurance um, uh, supplies. But with Medicare for all, we're going to see a much lower um, insurance rate. So the per person uh, the amount of money a hospital is going to get per patient is going to be significantly less. So is there a worry that hospitals could actually close down because of this? I think there is a worry that hospitals can close down. I think there's also a bigger worry that like less doctors would want to come into the field. Um, because if you're going to get paid, I think it was like 60 cents per um, whatever insurance pays. I might have gotten that metric completely wrong, but if you're getting paid that substantially less, and especially in other areas where like, um, where like there's like, there's more patients, like there's like less sick people, like getting that much less money, I think would hurt the hospitals and also like add to the doctor shortage we're already facing. Um, to sort of add on to that, um, I'd say like, yes, obviously the hospitals are going to be paid like less money compared to private insurance per patient. Um, but we also have to keep in mind that there would probably be more patients going in and out of the hospitals. Like I think specifically for rural hospitals, they all serve a bunch of like uninsured patients. And then because of that, like their costs are rising because they're trying to like compensate for these uninsured patients. Um, but then like if you were to give everybody insurance, then yes, there would be like you would get paid less per patient, but there would also be more patients coming in. Um, and then just like one, one statistic that I remember was that when we expanded Medicaid, 83% um, of the hospitals, the rural hospitals that closed down were the ones that actually rejected Medicaid. So like Medicaid in some cases had actually saved the hospitals because they had actually been getting more patients coming in and therefore had been getting more money. Yeah, I definitely agree with the um, rural hospital points. I think in poorer areas, it might actually help them. Um, but that's rural hospitals are only like 20% of American hospitals. And um, I think on net, you'd still see the decrease. And I just don't think like Medicare for all, like on net will bring like positive change. And I definitely agree. Like that's a huge problem, like the uncompensated care and all of those things. But when it comes down to actually solving for it, um, I don't think on net Medicare for all would be the most ideal solution. Yeah, and I mean, like for Americans, if their hospital does close down and if doctors do leave, what do you think the effects of that is going to be for someone watching? Honestly, it's with less doctors and obviously with less people working, there's going to be less uh, people to serve. There's going to be less people that's actually going to serve the community, which will... Um, essentially lead to the shutdown of the hospital is what you're suggesting. So it's gonna be hard for somebody who's watching, especially if 
uh, hospital shuts down due to like a lack of workers or anything, because then you'd probably have to travel farther for another hospital and travel farther for better care than other hospitals may give. All right, and transition, transitioning back to the economy, um, Medicare for all would um, implement price controls, which um, the, Donald Trump has also implemented some price controls. Uh, Medicare for all does have a different price, call, price control system called value-based pricing. Um, what effect would this have on the drug companies and the pharmaceutical companies? And will drug prices go down and will that, or will that actually harm innovation? What are some effects that we might see? Adam, you wanna start off for this one? In terms of the pharmaceutical industry, Okay, so um, the pharmaceutical industry is obviously very profit-driven right now. But the thing is, they don't spend that much money of their profits. They spend a lot of money, but not a large percentage of their profits on actually making new drugs. And right now, they're doing this thing called evergreening, which is basically they're just changing old drugs very, very slightly and calling them new drugs and selling them for large amounts of money to the American population. In the last couple of years, only like 10% of drugs have been actually new that have been developed. Yet we're pouring so much money into this industry. So under Medicare for All, we're going to institute something called value-based pricing, which is where a drug, a government sets a price based on how much it actually helps people. So when we did this in Europe, we saw that this increased good innovation, like innovation that actually helps people by 30%. And so under Medicare for All, we're probably more likely to see innovate, good innovation by big pharma. But where the problem arises is where is with small pharmaceuticals. So small pharmaceutical companies are right now like 50% oh, oh, funded by venture capitalists. And venture capitalists have stated multiple times that if there are price controls, they will leave the industry. And the thing is small biotech are working on uh, drugs that we need to fight very specific things that become relevant in the future, but don't generate a profit right away. So big pharma isn't, in, isn't investing in these things, but small pharma is. So if we lose small pharma, then I, we lose an important part of our lose an important source of innovation for the future. Anybody want to add on? Yeah, Jay, go ahead. So um, actually, I'd say that these small companies, like these small biotech companies, are actually dying in the status quo. And I feel like um, with Medicare for all, like they may die as well, because there's like the venture capitalists pull out. But if they're already dying in like, with our current system right now, I feel like it's pretty non-unique uh, what you're saying about the small biotech companies. Just a quick thing about the small biotech companies. Um, Aishik, I think you can correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't 2020 the biggest year for small bio? Yeah, it's, it's set to be um, record. And then the investment over the past three years have stayed relatively consistent. Okay, so currently they are sort of picking up again then. Yeah, apparently something happened during COVID, which made it like more appealing to invest in. So it's like pretty good, doing pretty well right now. Okay. So Aishik, do you think um, a Medicare for all system would hinder this investment? Um, I think it would hinder the investment, but right before I answer that, I want to touch upon what Adam said about um, like, there's no like new drugs. I feel like this, like logically, yes, if there's like, a drug already made, you probably wouldn't want to like waste investment in creating the other drug. But I think the value of having generics that are duplicated is because it like decreases the price. I think 
once there's two more generics introduced into the market that are the same, it actually decreases the price of the drug by 50% because it increases competition. So by naturally just introducing that many generics into the market already helps to decrease the costs. Um, and in terms of like profits for pharma companies, yeah, like if you're going to like negotiate price cuts with them, that's already like gonna make the pharma industry angry. And you're like artificially trying to decrease how much the drug costs instead of like trying to decrease it in a free market, which I don't think is the best way to do it. All right, and um, do you guys think that these price controls go far enough to make uh, prescription drugs affordable for Americans? Um, right now, I believe uh, 58 million Americans cannot afford prescription drugs. So does Medicare for All solve this problem or is there still a far length to go? Uh, Jay, you can um, have this question. So actually I'd say that Medicare for All solves this sort of equity crisis with, um, with these drugs because right now I know um, some people that are very close to me who have like uh, diseases such as like type one diabetes and et cetera, right? And right now the cost of insulin in the US is literally like skyrocketed it's so much, especially during COVID-19, like it's, it's, it's a lot. And then if you look to Canada, like literally if you search up the insulin prices on Canada, they're like half the price or like one fourth of the price in the US. So that's what happens with a single payer um, market is that the, the prices actually drop and more people can afford the drug. And so when opponents of Medicare for all say that since price controls will happen, these drug companies will not gain their profits, I will disagree on that because when price controls happen, more people can actually afford the drug. So yes, the drugs will cost less, but since more people are buying it, the profit will stay relatively similar. But what evidence has shown is that if we um, increase the price controls like past a certain point, like past maybe 40%, then there reaches a break-even point where the companies aren't making enough profit on the drugs anymore. So at that point, if we're only decreasing drug prices by maybe 20, 30%, then that's okay. But Medicare falls like 40 to 50%. So that significantly lowers their profits, right? So then they're going to innovate less in if they have lower profits, right? Wait, if you lower the um, profits, like yes, the prices, the drugs are lower, but more people would also be able to afford the drug, right? So wouldn't more people also be buying the yeah, drug? Yeah, so there's like, yeah, so there's like, it's just supply and demand. So at, there comes a point where, yeah, more people have access, but if but if it's like past like 30, 40%, then already most people have access and you're just pushing the price lower. And at that point, you're just decreasing profit and not increasing access. Yeah, basically Medicare for all, which what Adam said, it cuts it like prices um, a bit too much and yeah I agree okay. with Jay I think it does like solve a huge part of equity and it definitely like helps like people get access to healthcare. but I think <laughs> it creates a ton of other problems that would starting to like be addressed and it would only be like a temporary solution. Jay go ahead. Okay so I actually feel like the best scenario would be well, I'm not sure if like Adam's correct. I I'm not sure if like any of these like speculations are correct about like 40% price controls will like drop profits. But even if it does drop profits, I can like, I I'd advocate that the amount of accessibility that are like the people in America will have to these drugs and like the amount of money that we're, we will be spending on these drugs will be like significantly less. And I'd say solving for the equity crisis is probably the most important thing right now over like profits for a company. Because like, obviously, like, as you, I've used, as you stated before, these pharma companies are actually spending most of their money on marketing and et cetera, and not on like solely innovating. Their solely innovating money is 
well, I'm not sure on like the numbers, but I'm I'm sure that they can like drop some of their profits, drop some of their marketing, and then but they, solving okay. for the. Oh, yeah, they spend most of their money on medical marketing. That's still needed under Medicare for all because now there's only one buyer. So it's going to be even more competition for all of your drugs. So they're probably yeah. going to need to spend more on marketing under Medicare, under Medic, on, for medical marketing, right? So why would that go down? There's not exactly like one buyer. There's still, there's still going to be out-of-pocket like costs. According to like Sanders' plan, there are going to be out-of-pocket costs that's going to happen, but it's going to be like up to like $200. $200. So like it's going to be smaller out-of-pocket. So there will still be more buyers. But yeah, you're right in the sense that if it's, it's out-of-pocket, like, it still means they're a single buyer. The buyer is the government. There's no reason to carry. You're yeah, not under carry Medicare it. for all, like that's also like a different thing. Where if only there's only a single buyer, like dominating the system, it decreases new products, um, and supply. So like, there's still gonna be like people buying, but like, the, like the thing connecting everyone to like the people is just the government. Um. So. Most other countries are some version of single-payer systems. Have we seen the, this happen in un, any other countries where, you know, either the quality of healthcare has gone down after a single-payer system was implemented, or we saw drugs um, innovation decrease, maybe? Has this happened in any other country before? Uh, Adam, you want to take this question? Yeah, so what we've seen historically is that the U.S. is the global leader in all sorts of medical innovation in terms of med tech, in terms of drugs, in terms of clinical trials. The U.S. is always first. And what's the only difference between our countries and theirs? Our, the only difference is that we do not have a single pair system. In fact, some companies there spend more of their sales on innovation or abroad spend more of their sales on innovation. Yet their success is far lower because in the U.S. we innovate 44% of the world's global new medical compounds. So even if there was like a rise in Europe during value-based pricing, it, it's still not comparable to anything that the U.S. does. So that's what we've seen empirically. Yeah, in terms of quality of healthcare, I think the effects of deteriorating quality of healthcare within the European Union is kind of showing itself now. Just gonna read something really quickly. So private insurance in the EU has increased by more than 50% in the past decade specifically to quote ever-growing gaps in coverage left by public systems and then like where the UK where people like pride themselves in having a um a single-payer system more and more they're switching away from like public systems to private systems and more than 50,000 British citizens travel out of the country and spend 161 million euros out of pocket to receive medical care you will not hear any story of anyone leaving the United States to go get medical care but for Canada, UK, and all these single-payer systems, those are all the stories you hear where they come to the U.S. to get medical care. Jay, you want to respond? Uh, I want to respond on to the fact of, like, affordability versus, like, the affordability of the drug and then, like, how the drug prices will go down and all of that. So I agree that, like, the drug prices, I mean, um, I agree, like, that, like, the innovation aspect is probably better in the status quo like medicare for all may decrease innovation but i'd i'd say that i'd rather have a world because the, the purpose of innovating is to create not only profit but to create drugs for people to use and to save like lives right but if people can't afford the drug in the first place then there's really no point of innovation so i'd actually advocate for affordability over 
um, like drugs existing because yeah, you can have the cure to cancer, but if it's like $10 trillion, no one's going to buy it. But if you have like, um, like a COVID-19 vaccine and it's very affordable and everyone can get it, I'd rather advocate for that world um, than a world um, where it's like extremely expensive and no one can afford Wait, it. Quickly on affordability, um, I also just want to point out that a lot of like drug companies, they purposely like hike up the prices in the US um, and then, then sell that same drug for lower prices in the developing world. So although people in the United States, like, you know, there are a lot of people who can't afford drugs, um, but we are also supplying really cheap drugs to the developing world. Um, so I would say like that's also a potential benefit. You can't just look at it like how many people in the U.S. Like I think you have to look at the total number of people who are giving access to that drug. Um, and especially if we are giving people access in the developing world um, and under price controls, we not be able to do that. Um, then, yeah, I would say that if you're giving people access in the developing world, then I would say on net, it is probably like a good thing. Um, just want to clarify my point. So, yeah, um, access is important. Again, I'm not like saying access is bad. Um, obviously, America's healthcare system isn't exactly that great. A lot of people are uninsured. A lot of people die unnecessarily. So just my point of view just comes from like Medicare for all isn't the way you're going to solve for it. And even like the guarantee of access isn't exactly a guarantee because when the government pays, so I'm like, I'm using United Kingdom, for example, when the government pays for all of these drugs and all these treatments, they're capped at a certain price. They're not going to go on infinite spending to make sure everyone's accommodated. So they're only going to approve the drugs and buy the drugs that fall within their cap, which is why in the U.S., like the U.S. doesn't have that. So like, let's say you have like new cancer drugs. In the U.S., all 45 new cancer drugs were approved and covered, Okay. But in the United Kingdom, only 26 of them were covered because the government cannot spend that much money on all of these new cancer drugs. So for, and this also points some other um, medical economists brought up that if you're going to have a really, really popular drug that most people are going to take, that drug might not actually get improved because it falls over the cap. So you have all of these like different logistical errors with making sure that access is possible. Um, I don't know how the US will run their system, but there does come that one issue with making sure the government will buy your drug and the government will make sure that you're covered. And I also agree with Roshni's point where if you're going to hit price controls here and that means that like places in Africa where like medical innovation is exactly a thing and then they're going to lose coverage, then that's also like a huge problem because like, like um, first world countries like us are like, they're like gateway to making sure that they can get actual like healthcare treatment. All right, Jay, really quickly, you can respond. Right. Really quickly on the developing world. I want to bring up an empiric um, that says that when domestic profits fell for pharma companies, they shifted to actually increasing accessibility in the developing world. Um, and you can look at the 08 recession because to increase pharma revenue, pharma companies actually increased the number of people receiving treatment in developing worlds like Africa by 77%. And after this developing world expansion of treatment, the pharma profits actually increased by 8%. Give me like five seconds. I highly doubt that card accounts for a massive 50% price cut in Medicare for all. Again, price cuts by itself within Adam's like stated threshold range isn't bad. That's completely fine. I think that's what Trump's doing. But when you're hitting Medicare for all marks and you're losing profit, um, I don't think that same thing is going to play out. So it's like not topical of a comparison. All right, really quickly, I have a question for Aishik and Roshni, if you guys could sum up the pros and cons for Medicare for All in 30 seconds to a minute. Um, just kind of sum up what really Medicare for All means for people watching today. Uh, Aisha, you can go first. All right, so Medicare for All takes a jab at our terrible uh, healthcare system, make sure everyone got access, everyone has it for free. 
um, access is a very contentious matter, but um, the lower and middle class families are going to save money on net. Some cons on it, more wait times. Will you get better quality of health care? Some people might argue a moral issue on whether or not Bernie's specific plans of a wealth tax or other ways of taxing rich people are okay. Um, and it's not a sustaining solution given how the EU is kind of falling apart and going back to private insurance. All right, Roshni. Very similar to Aishik, um, the pros are definitely that people get healthcare. People who are currently going bankrupt, which is like medical bills are the number one path to bankruptcy. So all of those people are going to be able to see net savings. So I think people will be lifted out of poverty. Um, you are going to see more people get access. Uh, in general, the lower and middle class are going to save in terms of money. Um, but again, the cons are that like Medicare for all sounds like this amazing thing, like free healthcare for everyone. Um, but if you sort of look at the logistics, first of all, we don't really know how it's going to be funded. So there's no way to say that we're going to be able to enact it. Um, and then sort of like what Aishik said, there's no actual guarantee that the, the, the health care you're going to get is going to be quality health care. Um, and then the last thing is probably that pharma companies and small biotech companies are going to be losing revenue. Um, and that may or may not impact innovation and access to drugs in the developing world. All right, just because we have to move on. Um, great discussion, but we're going to move on to the Biden health care plan. And there are five main pillars to the Biden's health care plan, which is one, lower the Medicare age to 60, two, install a government run public option, three, boost the Affordable Care Act, four, stop surprise billing, and five, lower drug prices. Joe Biden would also bring back the individual mandate, which is a penalty for not having health insurance. We appeal existing law that currently bans Medicare from negotiating lower prices with drug manufacturers and allow undocumented immigrants to buy into the public option, but it would be subsidized. Um, so my first question for you guys is what does a Biden plan look like and what does it mean for someone watching today? Adam, you wanna start? So the Biden plan is, as you said, a public option plan. So the reason some or many politicians prefer this over an MFA or Medicare for all plan is that it allows those with private insurance to keep their care, to keep their level of care and to not have to conform to the healthcare that everyone else is gonna get under Biden care. But Biden care provides for poor people the option to get subsidized government healthcare for free. So there's obviously problems that come with this, like um, everybody's paying taxes for a certain subset of people to get care. But it is, or some say it is better because it gives everyone the security that if they are unemployed, if they lose their money, then they will be able to get access to care with no problem. All right, and um, Jay, do you wanna add on? Wait, can I, can you edit this into like the Medicare for all section? Like real quick. All right. Okay, okay. Uh, just, just to add on, uh, onto the pros. Uh, I don't think I heard you guys say this, but like, I, I have like a, a piece of evidence that says that Medicare for all will actually save 70,000 lives annually in the United States. And then um, equity wise, we're reducing headcount poverty by 19%, reducing the overall poverty gap by 22% and increasing poor people's incomes by 29%. Uh, here, Anika, you can pause recording for one sec. Is it recording? All right. Um, so my next question for you guys is that 28 million Americans have no health insurance. 58 million Americans can't afford their prescription drugs. 43% of Americans aged 19 to 24 are underinsured. And the U.S. spends more per capita on health care than any other country. 
does Joe Biden's plan go far enough to fix America's healthcare woes? Uh, Roshni, how about you start off with this one? Okay, um, I just want to start off by saying, like, I don't know if there's a real way to completely fix the healthcare system. Like, Medicare for All is trying to do that by giving everyone insurance, but obviously there's drawbacks of that. Um, I would say expanding health insurance is definitely good. Um, I would say it's like definitely balancing out, like trying to fix our status quo, but not going like completely in the other direction and making the government control everything. Um, so yeah, I would say that it is in general, like on net pretty good. And it, it does, it doesn't solve the uninsured crisis, but I think it does like sort of definitely help that crisis because it's like very clear that our current healthcare system is pretty bad or at least has some gaping holes. Um, so I think it, while it may not be the best step in terms of solving it, it at least makes some kind of step. Um, Adam, would you like to add on? I think that it's the fairest step, right? Because a public option means that everyone retains quality of care. So that's a big thing that many middle-class and upper-middle-class Americans have against Medicare for All, is what if the quality of my care goes down? Because we've seen that, that like areas that they didn't expand uh, to Medicaid versus Medicare, Medicaid areas. In Virginia, surgeries that were done in Medicaid hospitals had a 33% higher death rate, right? So we've seen that empirically quality of care can go down in a public option system. So is that trade-off worth it to have that system and to be paying taxes for people who, who aren't able to get care right now is it worth it to lose your quality of care, right? So that's why public option is better than Medicare for all in terms of upper middle-class Americans. But the problem is you're paying for something that you're not getting. So it's, it's a huge trade-off for the system and it's up to personal. I think it's more of a personal thing of what you prefer and your ideals. Just really quickly on the thing that we're paying, I mean, like we're paying for something we're not getting, like I agree with that and I think people will be mad. Um, but in the status quo, we do pay, like uh, under Obamacare, we are paying for things that we are not necessarily eligible for or things like social security, a lot of things like welfare programs, while all of us may not need that, we are paying so that other Americans can get that. So I would say like that's also happening in the status quo. It's not something that's only gonna happen um, under Biden care. That's kind of like how our government works in the sense that like middle class or like upper middle class people pay for things that lower class people might need. Yeah, but you're getting something back out of it, right? For example, if we're going to end up going with a free college system and yeah, the taxes are going to be progressive, you're still benefiting. Your kids are going to college for free. But on the other hand, with public option, you're getting absolutely nothing if you're paying the brunt of the taxes for it. That's true, but for things like welfare programs, like as of right now, like hopefully who are not like qualifying for those, but we are paying so that other people, like we don't, I don't benefit at all from other people getting welfare, right? So like- But is welfare funded by taxes or is it funded by debt, right? That's a difference. And also is welfare sustainable? Is welfare morally right? Is welfare the best option to go with? People dispute these things. It's not like a given that welfare is the right thing to do. Okay, that, that is true. Um, kind of uh, talking about welfare and talking about, you know, expanding coverage. Um, one of the big problems for lower class Americans is that their drugs are too high and that um, they do have high co-payments when it comes to medical bills. Um, does Joe Biden's plan effectively 
lower drug prices for these people and uh, effectively lower deductibles? Aishik, you want to answer this question? Um, yeah. I think if you do have Obamacare, it probably does lower your current deductibles. However, the part that Biden does plan on bringing back is the individual mandate, where pretty much means if you're not going to sign up for Obamacare, you still have to pay a couple thousand dollars. Um, and the reason they did that was to help fund the system because they had like problems in funding it. But at the end of the day, if you're a low-income family and you're trying to like live and you don't want health insurance, it really doesn't make sense for Congress to have the power to tax you like that hard. Um, and even for people that don't use Obamacare, they're still going to be affected because in the past when Obamacare was implemented, premiums and deductibles for private insurance holders also went up. So then you have um, that side of the story. And even if you do get Obamacare, you come back to the question, do you actually get higher quality healthcare, um, which is also disputed because many people that do enroll under Obamacare don't actually enroll into Obamacare, they enroll into Medicaid, where Medicaid has been statistically been shown to lead to worse quality healthcare than having no insurance at all. Uh, anybody want to respond to that? To the worst quality healthcare thing, I'm not exactly sure what source you're using, I shake, but a lot of this- I have five. That... five. Okay, never mind. If you're using five research papers. Wait, how is that even possible? If you're getting insurance, how is that better than nothing? That I, I don't like honestly, I don't I don't buy that, even if it's like research papers. It's something to do with longer hospital care, incur more hospital costs. I think you oh, oh, also one for let me I think this clarifies most of it. If you enroll under Medicaid, um hospitals don't want you because they get paid lower rates. Yeah, so, so many hospitals are right now rejecting any Medicaid patients because yeah. they don't want to expand them because they get reimbursed absolutely nothing back so they get no money out of it so they're obviously trying to cater more to private insurance patients so even the level of care offered is more to private insurance patients than it is to yeah there's like this thing obama said a lot is like you get to choose your doctor but like at some point the doctor like can reject you yeah. and yeah. after obamacare was passed i think it went up to 54 percent of hospitals will not accept the medicaid and that's like a lot of hospitals so i think because of that at least a lower quality care Wait, is Biden going to reimburse at the same rate Medicaid, Medicare is, or is he going to have higher reimbursement rates? Well, it doesn't matter because even under Obamacare, I think 60 to 70% of people that enrolled under Obamacare ended up going into Medicaid. So if you expand, you can probably expect the same rate of them going into Medicaid. I don't know what happened to like the 30% that did get it, but this is for like the majority of people that will be offered the option. Okay. Uh, transitioning to the economy, uh, Biden Care would cost about 700, $750 billion over the next 10 years, funded through wealth taxes. What effect would this have on the economy? Ed? Okay, basically wealth taxes is that the more money you make, the higher you're taxed. That's, that's literally it. And what, what's going to happen is that like, if you're making like $20,000 in income, you're only going to be taxed like $1,000 let's say. And then if you're making like over $400,000, you're going to be taxed like 10,000. It's like something like that, like where the ratio just goes up. So I quickly want to clarify your definition. You're referring to an income tax, not a wealth tax. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I meant wealth. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. How much wealth do you have? In your yeah, yeah. How much wealth do you have? Yeah. Um, could we see any potential effects on the economy or do you think 
the 750 uh, billion price tag is kind of justified and we won't see anything change. Uh, I don't know wealth tax economics like super hard, but I know, uh, I think UC Berkeley released a study a while ago. And if it's the proposed wealth taxes that Bernie wants, then it's like, I think 90% or higher or like some like huge number if you combine all of his taxes. Economically, you might see like lower employment if you're taxing rich people that much. Um, I do think like a little bit of wealth tax probably wouldn't have that big of an impact on the economy and you can easily get away with it because a 750 billion price tag isn't exactly that much. But I think there does come a question of morality where, yeah, they are billionaires, but when you're, are you like, is it morally justified to tax like someone 90% of their like total income and wealth, especially when they don't like just have the wealth. Cause like, I think people like tend to hate on a billionaires uh, quite a bit. Like Bezos, for example, he has, he's pretty rich CEO of Amazon, but like he doesn't, he doesn't like actually have like a, like, a, like tens of billions of dollars lying around. Those are like not liquidated. So at that point, is it moral to just like tax things you don't actually have liquidated money for? Jay, go I mean, ahead. Oh, okay. oh yeah, oh, we'll I, go to Jay and then we can come back to Adam. Okay, okay. I'll go first then. Um, okay, so what you see from the coronavirus crisis right now is that the rich are only getting richer and the poor are only getting poorer. Like you see this in like throughout America, you see this like this is a huge trend, right? And like I, I'm not sure if it's 90%, like the number 90% you brought up. Like I'm, I'm not sure if like we're gonna, actually going to tax like rich people 90%, but um, I do believe that there should be not I don't, I don't know about 90%, but there should be a considerable amount of taxes on the wealthy people if it means that we're spreading um equality, we're spreading equity to um people of lower income because if someone has like a trillion dollars, well, Bezos or like, I heard that Bezos is going to become a trillionaire soon or something. Like if Bezos has a trillion dollars and like a trillion dollars can solve like so much poverty in the- How year, much like, of it is liquidated? How it's, it's yeah, probably, so, oh, it's probably over 90% in assets. And, and is it fair to redistribute the wealth that somebody has accumulated to the poor just because they are rich? How is that in any way morally so, fair to those people? Okay. So on fairness, I'm not sure it's fair, but if you look at it from- a, an equity standpoint like who cares if it's fair if you're removing so many people out of poverty if you're providing these people a health care then i feel like the cost analysis benefit of it is good like just because like bezos can't afford like a like three thousand private jets now that's not going to make a difference in his life i think that like making one person live a, like a worse life and making like tr millions of people live better lives is a good payoff okay, first public option doesn't have the employment benefits that medicare for all does and in terms of it's being raised through taxes, I mean, the probability that anything happens with taxes is super low, right? Because we're looking at the majority of politicians right now have all said they would not support any plan that raises any sort of taxes on their constituents. A lot of so I think Democrats, no, I think Democrats are completely fine. I think Republicans are fine. Yeah, so I mean, it's going to need some sort of Republican passage unless the Democrats win both the House and the Senate. So at that point, it's probably going to be funded through debt, right? So it becomes a point of, is increasing the U.S. federal debt at this point bad? Well, essentially, if you're going to talk about from that standpoint of increasing the debt, there is always the option of reorganizing funding that goes through with the government that could, like, essentially keep, like, it will keep the amount of debt that we have right now, but it will reorganize the amount of funding that goes to, for example, the military or like education. And it'll like 
um, and add more to like the healthcare system. I and, would say that's an option, but has Biden said that he is planning to reallocate? He has not. However, he has said something about like increasing. So in, in like when we're talking about like, um, uh, I think one of you mentioned about um, the, what is it? The uh, the healthcare workers and how it's like you're when you're taxing them, it's just gonna it's um, the increased taxes won't actually benefit the um, the hospitals and everything. Well, it, in Biden's thing, it says that it will actually like increase the wages for the health and lower the cost. So like essentially, it the quality of it goes up, even though you're taxing more people, the quality goes up and the costs go down, which essentially benefits those who want to have the medical care. I definitely agree. Reallocating costs, especially I think we um, spend considerably a bit too much on our military for Biden care. I think that's a viable option because it's 700 billion. So I think the defensive budget is also around 700 billion, so like reallocating a little bit from there. For Medicare for all, I don't think it's um, going to work because Medicare for all is 32 trillion over 10 years. So that's 3.2 a year. Um, so I don't think enough cuts for the defense budget would actually help it that much. Um, going back to Jay's point on Bezos contributing some wealth tax to just solve income, part of income inequality. I think in theory, that does sound like a good idea because obviously like Bezos doesn't need all the money he does. And just even uh, besides the point of morality, I think we should look to like previous historical examples because the thing you kind of said is like, it's one way increasing welfare. So on top of the already like a lot of welfare we have, is it good to increase that much welfare? Because when I think when Lyndon, I think it was Lyndon B. Johnson, when Lyndon B. Johnson passed um, one of like one of those huge like welfare packages, I think is when we saw in U.S. history when people became more dependent on the government and communities got worse, communities got shattered. And I think that's when the single parent um, rates of every single ethnicity group started to rise up. And that in turn, when people look back, said, you know what, that wasn't that good of idea it was like a good short-term plan i guess but it had adverse impact so if we do want to increase um welfare under obama's plan i mean biden's plan then um i think we have to take into account what possible long-term effects that can have yeah and you know just kind of going off of this income inequality is the highest it has ever been in american history um, you know, we've seen a lot about um, just the effects of like slavery, people discussing institutional racism, you know, the wealth gap, the race, racial wealth gap, both, you know, the wealth gap between, you know, the top 1% of Americans and the bottom, the rest 98%. And we've heard a lot about um, the wealth gaps, the racial wealth gaps between, you know, African Americans and whites and minority groups and uh, uh, white people. Um, do you think Biden care could potentially maybe decrease these gaps? Will it help, you know, decrease income inequality? Or do you think more something else is needed or more reforms are needed at that end? Jay, you can go ahead. Okay, so I'm not sure about like income inequality and all of that, but I can certainly say that Biden care defends healthcare protection for all. Uh, regardless of gender, gender identity, or sexual orientation, because before the Affordable Care Act, insurance companies could increase premiums just because someone um, was of a certain gender, sexual orientation, or gender identity. Be, uh, further, insurance companies 
uh, could increase premiums or deny coverage altogether due to someone's HIV status. So what's happening right now is that President Trump is trying to like walk back on this progress because he's proposed to once again allow healthcare providers and insurance companies to discriminate based on a patient's gender identity or abortion history. And um, what Biden Care is doing is that it's defending the rights of the people because healthcare is a human right. I feel like that's a very important part, regardless of gender, sexual orientation, or gender identity, to have access to quality, affordable healthcare from free, uh, free of discrimination is a human right. So I feel like on the human rights aspect, Biden Care is definitely winning. Let's talk about rights. So under a Biden Care system, so basically right now, private insurance are required by law to provide for the care of transgender individuals and their gender reassignment and other surgeries. So what happens under Biden? We lose that. Under Biden care, there are certain things which are not gonna be required to be covered anymore, neither under their jurisdiction of states, under the jurisdiction of an independent advisor, or sorry, not independent, but like a presidentially appointed advisor. So once that happens, whenever we have an elected Republican, then all rights for transgender individuals are lost. And right now these rights are completely covered, are required to be covered even by private insurance. So we lose that. In terms of the redis, in terms of income inequality, would it actually do that much to fight income inequality? So Biden care does nothing other than expand the ACA and keep private insurance or have a public option and keep private insurance. Hospitals are still gonna be completely incentivized to treat, bet, to treat patients better who have private insurance and to treat more patients who have private insurance because the reimbursement rates are so much higher, right? Once that's true, then there, we're still we're even exacerbating inequality because we're keeping it so that people who are richer and who can afford private insurance have are going to be the priority for all of hospitals. And there's no reason for any hospital to care for patients who have buying care if they have a person next to them with private insurance because they're just going to make so much more money. So it doesn't really help with the inequality in healthcare. And as a whole, it doesn't have the benefits of Medicare for all economically. So I don't think it helps much there. Well, it does help in one sense of like inequality in, in the case of like high maternal mortality rate as there's it's higher in senses of uh, people of like people of color than people who are white. So that what I'm not sure what uh, strategy they're talking about here and when they're talking um, on Joe Biden's healthcare plan, but apparently California came up with a strategy that reduced uh, by 50% the state's maternal death rate in regards to like uh, people of color. And Joe Biden wants to like use that strategy nationwide in order to decrease the maternal mortality rate in the case of like, because it's higher in the sense of um, in the sense of people of color, which is a, maybe like working towards it, but it doesn't help with the whole idea in the sense of all everything around it. Uh, yeah, so Jay, 30 seconds, and then we're gonna move on to wrapping up and talking about the status quo. Okay, so Adam said that Biden care won't help with the income inequality, with inequality, but the alternative, like you have to look at the alternatives, like no plan is like, obviously, as you can tell from now, no plan is perfect. Um, but what Biden Care does is it makes sure that the status quo of, of Affordable Care Act of not discriminating against someone stays in place. So as I've said before, what President Trump is actually saying to do is to remove this, um, this uh, proposal that, and he's saying to allow healthcare providers or insurance companies to actually discriminate based on gender identity, abortion, or abortion history and all of, all of that. 
So when you look at the alternatives, a wealth tax and making sure there's no discrimination is better than doing nothing. And yes, I agree, Adam, like obviously buying care like has its flaws, like it may not be helping people that much. But when you look at what the alternatives are, it's nothing. It's literally like nothing is happening. So I'd say that even trying nothing to is better us. than something that is detrimental to the rights of people right you're gonna restrict how is ac- you're restricting access to gender reassignment surgeries you're further prioritizing patients who have private insurance and making sure that hospitals are prioritizing them more than anyone else and you're also making sure that the quality of care is lower as we've seen empirically for patients who are on the public option plan i mean you're not making it so that okay so if the qual we're gonna value the life of a person over their financial standing right so if they're more likely right now to get quality care and then have trouble paying for it, surviving is better than dying. And because they have a lower quality of care, as we've seen with Biden care, with, with like public option level surgeries with subsidized health care when there's still private insurance. So we either go all the way to Medicare for all or we stay in the school because just going halfway is detrimental to all the people in America rather than helping one group and not helping another. Um, Jerry, All right, I should... Yeah, yeah so really Jay, quick. quickly on your transgender point, definitely agree transgender should have access to all healthcare. I know Trump has said some random stuff as he always does. However, um, he did say something, but then federal judges blocked what he wanted to do for transgender protections on the ACA. So I really don't think whatever he does in the future, it'll actually run through. It'll just be dropped, blocked by the federal courts. Um, and on quickly on income inequality, I actually don't think income inequality will go down. If anything, I think it might go up because I don't think Biden's wealth tax will be that much, given he's a moderate candidate. Although I think maybe Harris might um, increase the wealth tax. But if you're going to have low-income people who don't want health insurance pay a couple thousand dollars for the individual mandate, have premiums and deductibles go up for middle and lower-income class for have private insurance, they're spending much more than whatever the heck like the rich ever loses. So in that case, I don't really see income inequality going down. And then again, you don't really have the guarantee of having good health care um, at the end of the day. Yeah. All right. So transitioning from Biden care, just to talk about our current system today, I want to just really quickly start with the Affordable Care Act. Um, one, how effective has the Affordable Care Act been at combating the high cost of healthcare and prescription drugs in the U.S.? Roshni, you want to go ahead? Um, I, w- I wouldn't say the Affordable Care Act has been that effective. I think people have gotten insurance, um, but just in terms of the high cost of things like premiums and all of that, um, and also prescription drugs, I don't think the Affordable Care Act has been that effective um, at combating things like high cost. Um, and then as uh, Aishik also mentioned, like the quality of care isn't necessarily um, like the best compared to private insurance. Um, so I think like the Affordable Care Act has been able to give people more insurance and all of that. Um, but in terms of like the cost, I don't think it has done that much in terms of making the costs more affordable. Um, Aishik, would you like to add on? Uh, yeah, I don't think the Affordable Care Act actually like solves. And I think this is not just a problem with the Affordable Care Act, but just in general of how the government tries to approach solving like high medical bills. They don't actually try to like decrease um, prices naturally. They just try to make it more affordable for citizens. So it's like a really bandaged solution that doesn't exactly address the problem. And I think we've seen that with um, Obamacare uh, with like having, again, not exactly very quality healthcare, um, individual mandates hurting people and all of those sort of things. Um, And if we're talking about actual like long-term solutions, I feel like things like deregulating what insurance companies 
have to give you as long as like other steps of encouraging competition in the free market and like not having the government involved because I feel like whenever we have the government involved like when we expanded Medicaid and all those type of things that's when like government sort of like um like prices sort of went up and I feel like if the market continues to be the way it is if the government deregulates and make sure that free market exists and there's more transparency among like all the companies so there's no surprise bills or any of that I think that's a better way to make sure we have a long-term solution instead of maybe coming back in 10 years and be like, oh, well, Obamacare didn't fix it. What do we do next? And choose another mediocre path for the next 10 to 20 years. All right. Um, so Donald Trump and Republicans have repeatedly stated that repealing the Affordable Care Act is one of the um, top points for their agenda. And with the confirmation of Amy Cooney Barrett, some say Repu the Republicans' efforts to repeal the Affordable Care Act now seems like a real possibility. Do you think the Affordable Care Act will get reappealed? And what effect would the Affordable Care Act being reappealed have on the country? Uh, Jay, you want to start? Okay, so I actually don't know what the Republican Party's plan is um, besides getting rid of the Democrats' plan. Um, if anyone can like tell me what, what it is, that'd be greatly appreciated. But if uh, the Affordable Care Act is gone, um, many people will actually lose health insurance because the Affordable Care Act is actually covering many Americans. But um, right now, the Affordable Care Act is actually increasing premiums and it's finding people for not having insurance. So I say economically, um, maybe it'll be better. But um, equity wise, if we take uh, if we take away the Affordable Care Act, we'd be much worse. All right. And uh, Jay was asking about the Republican plan. Uh, Donald Trump has not released an official plan and uh, the Senate, the Republican Senate also does not, has not released a specific plan. But in 2017, House Republicans passed a bill that would have repealed Medicaid expansion and then individual market subsidies from the Affordable Care Act and would have repackaged them into a program that took some, but not all of the money and sent it to states and each state legislature would then take that money and craft a health insurance plan of their own making. Um, this did not pass in the De Democratic Senate. Um, just maybe we can like kind of combine these two topics. Do you think this is a good way to replace the Affordable Care Act? Do you think this 2017 bill is even viable or should we just kind of continue with the Affordable Care Act and try to just reform it and um, just create a better healthcare system on that route rather than trying to implement a Republican plan? I think the Republican plan actually allows for less transparency because, and it's going to take a lot more time than uh, what adjusting and like fixing, in a way, fixing the Affordable Care Act will. So essentially, that would take off time and would increase, in like, maybe possibly in the sense of if you repeal the uh, ACA and then you add on the Republican Care Act, it will take time and which causes more people to like lose, uh, possibly lose their jobs and like lose um, certain income to uh, health finances. So that's always gonna, that's definitely gonna be a huge like dis disadvantage of the Republican plan. So I believe like ACA is like just um, using buying care and like basically adjusting the ACA would be a little better. I should- uh, Okay, I'll yeah, start with Amy. I should to Jay. I'll start with Amy Coney Barrett and then go on to the Republic plan, uh, Republic, Republican plan. I don't think um, Obamacare is going to get repealed at the Supreme Court. Um, 
primarily because when it was last brought to court, the main point of contention was the individual mandate and whether or not the individual mandate was constitutional, I think for like Congress to tax people. Um, and they found that it was okay under Chief Justice Roberts. And now that the individual mandate's gone, I don't really see any reason for it to go back to the court. Additionally, Barrett has specifically said at the congressional hearings, judicial hearings, saying I'm not hostile to the ACA. She has no like pre like plan. I don't think there's any precedent for Barrett to go in and smack the ACA down. Um, similar to like other things like Roe and other things like that. Um, if Roe does, like things like Roe do get overturned, it's similar to things about like Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg was okay with abortion, but she was also somewhat iffy on how the actual like court was ruled. So like maybe like in situations like that, it'll get repealed. Other than that, I don't really see it getting changed and might be repealed if Biden brings back the individual mandate because then it'll go back to the courts and they'll argue whether or not the individual mandate is constitutional on a conservative majority. So in that case, I can see the ACA getting repealed other than that, if Trump gets reelected, I don't see a reason why. Um, and then on Republican tax plan, I'm not tax plan, the healthcare plan. I think it was like overall consensus by the economists and healthcare experts was pretty garbage plan. And to try to repeal the ACA, there's not a really sustainable plan. Um, and uh, like obviously it failed. Many Republicans were also against it. Um, yeah, so I just don't think it's like comparable to the ACA. I think the ACA is more flushed out. In terms of transparency, I don't think the ACA actually tried to solve transparency in any way. They just slapped on a bunch of taxes and deregulations um, to make sure that health insurance companies are doing their thing. Um, in terms of transparency, I think Trump has done more passing an executive order yesterday, along with the HHS to make sure that there's no surprise bills. And that um, first, like the first action we've seen to make sure that hospitals um, and insurance companies are transparent with the final costs. So um, that, I think that should help in decreasing prices in the long term. All right, Jay, uh, quickly, like 30 seconds, maybe. Wait, I think this whole, like, there's like, this is like really ironic, this whole debate, because Obamacare or like Affordable Care Act was actually built on a Republican policy chassis, which is the 1989 original Heritage Foundation proposal that was later adopted by the Democrats and morphed into the problematic Obamacare. So basically, Republicans just have a hatred for anything labeled Obamacare and still appear like unwilling to take that platform and overhaul it uh, based on Republican principles. And like, I, I don't know, like, honestly, like, if there's no counter plan to the um, ACA, I honestly think the ACA is, like, it's really hard to say it's because the ACA is, like, pretty flawed, but, like, I think, like, the ACA is probably better than the Republican plan if there's no alternative. All right, so now I just want to bring it all back and just wrap up this discussion. I want to go to each of you and ask you guys, what plan did you guys think was the best before this discussion? And has your opinion changed or has it stayed the same and why? Um, Aishik, let's start with you. Uh, I think my opinion has stayed nearly the same. I don't think Medicare for all or Obamacare or the status quo are like generally good systems. I'd argue the status quo is better than both of those systems. And that the way we actually need to solve it is through deregulation, transparency, increasing competition, uh, things I don't think any other president has actually kept in mind because we're too focused on making things affordable, whereas actually making it um, cheaper. I think all of those systems will lead to a road where all the other systems will, will just come back in 10 years and be like, okay, the system is bad and we'll try a new system. It's not working in other countries. It's not going to work in the United States. So, yeah. All right, Anika. Um, so in the beginning, I was like very, the Medicare for all is always going to be very appealing to people, 
and like essentially like having Medicare available, like what we hear about abroad is really like appealing to people. However, when you, in terms of moral and ethics, that's like the best plan, obviously, for, for everybody. However, when it comes to economy and cost and everything, it's not going to be viable in a way unless you like there are there are going to be like cost adjustments and everything, which is why I think like how now having the hybrid version that where it's there is Medicare and there also is private and private hospitals and everything though that will work out a lot better than having a complete Medicare for all. Roshni. Um, my answer is pretty similar to Anika. Um, honestly, I did not know that much about like all of these like systems like Biden care and all of that um, before coming into this debate. Um, but I would say, yeah, the system that is probably the best is a hybrid system. Obviously, none of the systems are perfect. Like you can find like so many flaws with each of them. Um, I just think that obviously Medicare for all, I don't think it's going to be like viable for us to enact it in a way that's actually bringing quality healthcare, um, being able to fund it like completely without com like destroying our economy. Um, and then the status quo, it's like all these people are uninsured, pretty much nobody can afford healthcare. So that's also a problem. Um, so I, I just think the hybrid system is probably the best system. Um, again, there's like a lot of flaws with it, but I would say just in terms of giving people insurance, but also letting them keep their um, quality insurance, I think just having a public option or a hybrid system is probably the best. All right, Adam. Yeah, so I walked into this thinking the status quo is the best system, and I'm leaving it more open to the public option plan, not necessarily Biden's, because I don't think that's the best well, public option plan in general. All right, and Jay. Okay, I've always been like pretty leaning towards Medicare for All. Um, I feel like it, Medicare for All is probably like, it, it's the most equitable, like, like it provides everyone healthcare. It's like pretty ideal, like perfect society type thing. But like, when you really look at it, um, like healthcare is a right. That, that's what I believe in. I think healthcare is like a human right, right? So, but when you look at public option, which is the hybrid model that everyone's talking about, you also get healthcare as a human right. And what Biden Care does is it establishes um, healthcare like as a human right. And it also, just like Medicare for all, it also doesn't discriminate against like if you're um, like your gender and all of that. And it also establishes like women's reproductive rights and all of that. So I feel like on an equity basis and on a basis of morality and um, just like providing rights, like human rights and rights in general, I feel like Biden Care or like a public option hybrid model, whatever you want to call it, is probably the best. But I'd still say Biden Care right now is pretty flawed. There, there has to be like I know there, there's a better solution than this, but I think that the hybrid is the best right now. All right, thank you for listening to this new episode on Medicare for All, on Bay Area Youth for Justice's podcast series. We hope you enjoyed it, and make sure to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel under Bay Area Youth for Justice, and our Instagram at the same handle as well as Disagree to Agree official on Instagram and YouTube. Thank you!